This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 6, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have Emily Conover up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Stephen Baker about the challenge of antimicrobial-resistant infections in low-income countries. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have Emily Conover, Science's News Intern. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. No one likes to have salt rubbed in their wounds. But our first story suggests that salt may have some overlooked healing benefits. A new study stumbled across some possible immune-boosting effects of salt. How did the scientists discover this, Emily? Well, researchers noticed high concentrations of salt in wounded skin of mice. And this was true even of mice on low-salt diets. And they thought maybe the body is moving salt to these areas to help combat infection. So to test that, the researchers started looking at the impact of salt on macrophages, which are immune cells that kill off invading pathogens. So they saw that mouse macrophages that were growing in a salty solution increased their killing capacity, releasing more microbe-killing molecules than those without salt. And when they infected these macrophages with pathogens like E. coli, they saw that 24 hours later, the salted macrophages had less than half the E. coli levels of the unsalted macrophages. Interesting. And then the researchers also did an experiment to see if salt intake in the mice would enhance immunity to bacterial infection? Yeah. They varied the salt content of the mouse's diet, and they saw that, in fact, it did affect the mouse's ability to recover. They infected the rodent's feet with a pathogen, 
and the rodents that had eaten more salt healed more quickly than the ones that had been on a low-salt diet. Interesting. So salty mice are one thing, but what about humans, Emily? Right. So, of course, we're really interested in people, not in mice. So to see if this had any relationship to what happens in a human, uh, they used an MRI technique that measures salt levels in skin. And they found high levels of sodium in bacterial skin infections in humans. All right. So that's pretty preliminary. And this is not licensed at all to go out and eat more salt. But does the finding hold promise for future treatment options? Yes. So since high salt diets are dangerous, you obviously don't want to start eating uh, lots of salty stuff. But doctors might think about using salty IV fluids or salty wound dressings to boost our immunity. Well, I'll be curious to see where that goes. Our next story might not be safe for work, depending on where you work. But here at Science, we have few qualms about such things. Researchers have attempted to quantify variations in human penis size in the past with mixed results. But a new study attempts to do away with the measurement bias that plagued earlier studies to come up with a much more accurate statistical range and average. How did they go about this, Emily? Well, this is an analysis that combined data from 17 smaller studies. So they had a total of over 15,000 penis measurements that were used in this analysis. And the studies all used the same technique to measure the size of the penis. And most importantly, all the measurements were done by medical professionals. So as you might imagine, when men measure their own penises, they tend to do a bit of rounding up. So you don't get accurate measurements that way. And what were the major findings here? So they found that the average flaccid penis is a little over three and a half inches long and a little over three and a half inches around. And when erect, the average penis is a bit over five inches long and about four and a half inches in girth. And they also found that men probably shouldn't be too concerned about other men with exceptionally large penises. Only five out of 100 men have a penis larger than 6.3 inches. And the same goes for small penises. Only five out of 100 men have a penis smaller than 3.9 inches. And was that part of the motivation for this study? Do they want to help men have a more realistic picture of the range of penis sizes that are actually out there? Yes, definitely. Research shows that only 55% of men are happy with their penis size. And these men probably have a distorted view of what averages thanks to things like porn and spam emails that market penis enlargement. So hopefully this study will clear things up and assuage some of those worries. Right. Now, endless jokes have been made about correlations between penis size and things like shoe size and height, for example. Do any of those correlations hold water in this study? No, there was no connection between penis size and height or any other physical characteristic. Big feet were irrelevant. They actually disagreed with most of those commonly accepted stereotypes about penis size. All right. Well, there you have it. A definitive study of penis size. Okay, our final story today concerns the way in which large carnivores may be controlling their population size. Other studies have looked at how individual species, wolves for instance, kill some young in a population. But a new study looks at the phenomenon across large predators on a global scale. What were the major findings, Emily? Well, researchers cataloged information describing 100 species of mammalian predators from around the world. So they went from polar bears and panthers all the way down to smaller ones like skunks. I mean, they searched for examples of predators controlling their own numbers. 
and kept track of traits like parental investment and birth rate. And they found that they could separate the animals into two groups based on size, so whether they were above or below 15 kilograms. And these groups tended to behave differently. Large animals bred more slowly and invested more time and effort into each cub. Half of the large animals controlled their numbers by letting only high-ranking individuals breed. So an example is wolves and hyenas, dominant females, kill the pups of the lower-ranked females, and then the whole pack raises the pups together. And this pattern was so strong that the researchers suggest that the ability to control their numbers might be part of what defines an apex predator. And why might it benefit a population of large carnivores for them to kill some of the young? Well, it's usually seen as a selfish act for them to kill off the young because it gives the dominant animals the best chance of perpetuating their genes. But in fact, it could be helping the whole pack survive by making sure that there's enough food for them to eat. And the authors say that large carnivores are under threat around the world. What happens to the ecosystem when their populations go out of balance? So uh, a lot of us are probably familiar with the explosion of deer populations when there are not large predators. The deer tend to increase in number and eat everything in sight. And mid-level predators like foxes and raccoons can get overpopulated without top predators like coyotes to keep them in check which can decimate populations of birds and small mammals. So top predators are really important for keeping the whole ecosystem in balance. Interesting. And what were some of the limitations of the study? So the study doesn't actually test whether social factors or other factors like limited food and resources keep predator populations stable over time. To do that, researchers would have to study stable social groups over many years, which is a difficult task right now because there's widespread habitat disruption facing most large predators. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Emily? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about tracking human health by studying the microbiomes in city sewers. Also, a story about menopausal killer whales and how they serve as leaders in their society. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story about an outside-the-box idea for funding basic research by setting up a national research bank. Also, a story about a Pentagon program that funds basic science, opening its doors to collaborations with UK researchers. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Suzanne. Emily Conover is Science's News Intern. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Antimicrobial resistance has led to the rise of hard-to-treat superbugs like MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is an increasing problem in hospitals and nursing homes. These infections don't respect borders, however, and Stephen Baker discusses the unique challenges faced by lower-income countries when tackling them. Ever since the discovery of antimicrobials, and there's been an issue with the emergence of resistance. So given laws of evolution and the selective pressures of the use of antimicrobials, it's always been predicted that resistance would be a problem, and it was from the onset and the introduction. And then over the years, as new chemical compounds and new agents of antimicrobials have been introduced, then the complexity has increased, and now we see a broad range of resistance across a huge spectrum of different bacteria. We hear a lot about antimicrobial resistance in the developed world. Why is it so important to turn our attention to what's happening in lower-income countries? The article that I've written is focused specifically towards lower-income countries. That isn't to say that the problem in higher-income countries isn't significant. 
And we know with problems such as Clostridium difficile and, and MRSA that these organisms are a problem. However, there are things that occur in different settings which may pose bigger problems for antimicrobials. So often the diseases that we see in lower-income countries are more rapidly developed, so they're of a greater onset. They're more severe, so we see a lot more cases of severe pneumonia and bacteremia. The examples that I've given in the paper are typhoid fever and also multidrug-resistant TB. And also exposure to antimicrobials is greater. So in places like Vietnam, you can buy antimicrobials over the counter, and this is the same in most low-income countries in Asia and indeed in Africa, whereby you can self-diagnose, go to a local pharmacy and buy your own drugs without seeing a physician. So what are some of the other factors that encourage antimicrobial resistant genes to thrive in low-income countries? So there's overall exposure, not just in the community from purchase, but also probably use in hospitals within the environment, also seepage from the use in agriculture. These are potentially huge problems. In places like Ho Chi Minh City, where I'm based, and other large cities, the population density is high. Therefore, the propensity for organisms to exchange genetic information or the transfer of drug-resistant organisms may be more common. There's no legislation either on the use of antimicrobials in animal feed, and most animal feed that will be purchased will contain some form of supplementation with antimicrobials. And then when animals are then sick, they will be then treated again, with antimicrobials which can be bought within the community. The use of antimicrobials in agriculture has encouraged animal growth, and tetracyclines were amongst the first group of compounds that were used. So really they are added as growth supplements, and there's a fairly substantial effect of making sure that not only uh, you get a good yield from your animals through both the amount of animals that you produce, so obviously a disease outbreak within your herd is not good news, but also then there's a promotion effect on individual animals whereby animals that are fed antimicrobials grow bigger than those that don't. Interesting. And you mentioned typhoid before. Tell me more about how some of these pathogens have been shaped by antimicrobial use in lower-income countries. Yeah, so one of the key areas of my research group is understanding typhoid fever and other gram-negative enteric bacterial infections. And we've been developing a lot of interest in using genomics to understand how these organisms are changing and adapting over time. So the field of genomics has changed fairly dramatically over the last few years, and now we have the capacity to sequence not tens of organisms, but now thousands of organisms through historic collections. And what we're seeing as we go back and reconstructing these evolutionary histories using genomics, we can see pivotal events in the organism's histories that have been shaped by the use of antimicrobials. For example, we can see particular clades that we now deem to be important that have emerged on the basis of a drug resistance mutation or the acquisition of an antimicrobial resistance gene. So typhoid is probably the thing that we know best. One of the issues with studying the effect of antimicrobial resistance is actually working out the direct impact of having an antimicrobial resistant infection in a patient. So we have very good data looking and quantifying the proportion of organisms that are resistant and what they may be resistant to and what that mechanism is. But actually the field of science is lacking really good data on individual patients and groups of patients and the effect of being infected with that antimicrobial resistant organism. We've been doing work on typhoid trials and various other aspects of typhoid treatment for many years. 
and our typhoid trials have been driven by the necessity to adapt typhoid treatment on the basis of emergence of resistance. And we now know that fluoroquinolone resistance has emerged in many locations and it's been driven by a particular clade of organisms that's resistant to fluoroquinolones. And we have very, very good clinical data now demonstrating that actually this is directly associated with your ability to fail treatment. So most people will be treated in the community with a fluoroquinolone. They will then go into hospital where, again, they may be treated with a fluoroquinolone, which means by the time they receive a suitable antimicrobial, they may have had the disease for two weeks or more. And this isn't good news for potential downstream effects, such as having a poor outcome and having complications which may be associated with death. So this is one thing that we're studying very closely. The other thing that we're looking at is an organism called Shigella. Shigella is a gram-negative bacteria that causes fairly severe diarrheal infections. We don't really understand so well the effect of treating people with antimicrobials when they have a Shigella infection. The disease tends to be fairly self-limiting, but in severe cases, children may warrant antimicrobial therapy. But if you look at the genomics of the organism, particularly Shigella sani, which is a species of Shigella, we see the emergence of, firstly, resistance to fluoroquinolones, and then more recently here, to third-generation cephalosporins, which means that not only are those drugs now essentially useless for the treatment of the infection, it also seems that those strains have been driven by exposure to these antimicrobials, not only at one particular point, but also longitudinally, which now maintains the fact that the vast majority of the organisms that we see and we isolate from children with diarrhea are actually resistant to those and a wide range of other antimicrobials. And how does the emergence of superbugs in lower-income countries affect the rest of the world? Apart from the overall economic burden of having resistant bacteria, which may have obviously financial implications for the rest of the world, these bugs are immensely transmissible. And also, often the genes encoding antimicrobial resistance and the plasmids and the transposons that carry antimicrobial resistance genes are also incredibly transmissible. So, in short, that means if new antimicrobial resistance mechanisms emerge in the back of the current situation in what's going on in low-income countries with overuse and limited prescription and other things, then actually the emergence of new resistance genes here uh, will have long-term implications for higher-income countries, given how much we travel now and how transmissible these organisms are and how also additionally transmissible the different resistance genes are between different organisms. There's the high likelihood of these genes jumping into strains that we see circulating in hospitals and in farms and other locations in higher-income countries. So not only is it a local problem, but also it may have long-term global problems for the way these drug-resistance genes hop around and emerge in new communities, in new environments, and in new locations, even those outside of the locations where they originally emerged. Let's talk about solutions now. In your paper, you discuss some successful initiatives to connect medicine in low-income countries with drug discovery in high-income countries that have the appropriate infrastructure. What are some successful examples? The best example that I can refer to is the Medicines for Malaria venture. So this is a group that are actually facilitating interactions in between research in lower-income countries and also then drug companies in higher-income countries that have access to a wide range of different chemicals that have either been orphaned or have been developed and then taken no further down the drug development platform. And this organization is making these chemicals available to the research community at no cost, which allows people in lower-income countries to take their 
parasites and then screen them and start looking for potential new chemicals that have antiparasitic activity. There isn't really anything in the field that I work in, which is gram-negative bacteria, that has a similar infrastructure that I'm aware of at the moment. It would really need a drive from people both located in areas where antimicrobial resistance is a substantial problem and also probably a push from the pharmaceutical industry to really start developing an interesting screening large amounts of chemicals for antibacterial activity that could then begin the very slow process of turning those things that may have good activity in a laboratory to something that may be biologically active in a system which can be then developed into a drug. So this is a very, very long path. However, at the moment, there isn't anything in place to really drive the development of new drugs or even study the potential effects of new drugs in places like Vietnam or Nepal or other locations where we work. And what else needs to happen urgently if we're to curb this problem? Well, I think there's lots been spoken about antimicrobial resistance. And I think that at the moment, it does look like a fairly glum picture. I don't want to be the prophet of doom. But with respect to many of the drugs that are available at the moment, really, we're closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. I think that it would be difficult now to reverse backwards unless new chemistries became available, which allows us to use older antimicrobials, then it would become very difficult. So if we are going to move forward, really, we need to develop better policies on the way we use current antimicrobials before we're at the point of apocalyptic uh, antimicrobial resistance, which means that very little would become biologically active. I don't think we're particularly close to that point at the moment, but I think that it's a real possibility. What we need is really good policies in place to restrict the use of particular groups of antimicrobials in both humans and animals. I think that without the development and the infrastructure in place to develop and use new drugs, we really need to think about if we did have new drugs, how we could use them better to avoid us going back to the same problem. Meaning that if we did introduce new drugs now into this current poor legislation of antimicrobial resistance in lower-income countries, we really would be back to ground zero within a very, very short space of time. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me, Stephen. Uh, My pleasure, and I hope people find this interesting. Stephen Baker writes about the challenge of antimicrobial-resistant infections in low-income countries, this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job.
Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.